Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Saw Something Scary. I'm your host, Jeff, and I'm joined here today by no one because I deleted the file that Derek and I recorded that was supposed to be our most recent episode covering the cure for wellness. Since Derek had an important audition today and we didn't have a good time in our mutual schedules to get together and re-record, you guys are with me on a solo flight this time. So welcome in. I did want to kind of reconstruct as much as possible what Derek and I talked about on the episode that is now lost. And so, in a very uh, strange way, we are now entering uh, a segment of Jeff Hates Trailers. Hosted only by Jeff. But here we go. There's a couple interesting new trailers that are out uh, since the last time we recorded. And I want to kind of touch base on a couple of these. First is the movie Leatherface that's coming out, I believe, in October. This is an origin story film focusing, not surprisingly, on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe. And as the title indicates, it's going to focus on the birth of the twisted creature that we call Leatherface. It's got a really impressive cast. Finn Jones from Netflix and Marvel's Iron Fist is in the movie. But right now, IMDb doesn't have what role he's playing listed. Um, Lily Taylor, who is usually very solid in her performances, is in there. Also, Stephen Dorff. This is a movie that normally would trigger my gore uh, alerts and I would try to avoid. But since Derek mentioned this to me and I didn't know if I wanted to see it or not, I went ahead and watched the trailer. And uh, while it does look like there will be plenty of the red chunky stuff in this movie, nonetheless, I'll probably watch this movie. Uh, It looks pretty good. I'm a sucker for a good origin story, unless we're talking about Rob Zombie uh, doing the origin of Michael Myers, which I guess is actually precluded from my calling it a good origin story. Nonetheless, I'm going to check this one out. Don't have as much love for Leatherface as I do Michael Myers, so I can uh, I can run the risk a little bit of seeing somebody mishandle that character if that turns out to be the case. But it looks, based on the trailer, like there's a good reason to hope this is going to be a good film. So if you haven't seen that trailer, go out and check that out if you can stand the, uh, the fright of it and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Another trailer that dropped recently that's on my radar is Ready Player One. Now, this is a trailer that I am not going to watch because I know I'm going to watch the movie. I love the book. It's one of the best sci-fi books I've read in recent years. And so when I saw they were making a movie out of it, I thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to be checking that one out. That may be an opening night uh, watch for me. So I'm all in on Ready Player One. If you're not familiar, this is obviously sci-fi, as I mentioned already. And uh, it's set in a world where, uh, of course, you know, society has fallen into dystopia. And yet there is a refuge online in a in a computerized alternative reality known as Oasis. And uh, just a really great story. If you like 80s pop culture, you will love this book because the author clearly knows what he's talking about and builds so many details about 80s pop culture into this futuristic world he's building for Ready Player One. Totally in on that. We got some really good news also that doesn't really connect with the trailer, but does refer to an upcoming project and one that's near and dear to the heart of the Saw Something Scary team. That is that on Twitter this week, we found out that there are talks ongoing right now for a new Hannibal season. Um, as you probably know, as you probably know, if you... Mm, as you probably know, if you've listened to this podcast for very long, Derek's a big fan of that series, the television series Hannibal. And we're both big fans of the character Hannibal Lecter, the movies, etc. In fact, you can go back into the archives and find our coverage of The Silence of the Lambs very easily. And let me encourage you to do so. I thought that was a fun episode. Lots of good detail there. And uh, particularly Derek's love for that film comes through loud and clear there. So good news. We'll be getting a little bit more of The Good Doctor, it appears. You know, most people rave about that series. And so I'm expecting that this is news that will be greeted with much fanfare and provide some really great watching for fans of that series. Before we move on, I wanted to mention a couple other movies to you that aren't exactly connected to trailers, but nonetheless kind of deal with movies to watch and 
upcoming movies, things that fall generally under the heading of Jeff H. Trailers and their podcast. One of those is a movie that's made its way to Netflix called Devil's Candy. Now, if you're familiar with the backstory of this movie, you know that this is basically a movie that people have been waiting about seven years to see. And um, that means it's a big deal when this thing hits Netflix and is available for wide consumption. I watched that the other night and uh, really enjoyed that film. If I could give you a description of it without giving away too much of the plot, I would tell you that it's a more grounded sinister or perhaps Amityville horror that gives you a sense of what's going on with the film. Uh, This is a very well-scripted movie, and it is well-acted as well. None of the performers really let you down. They're very believable. They're uh, the kind of characters that you would root for, uh, at least the ones you're supposed to be rooting for, and the ones that you're supposed to be terrified of help you be terrified of them. In particular, Pruitt Taylor Vince, who is the main bad guy in the movie, does a brilliant job. Now, if you are someone who has a hard time watching children in peril or you have uh, suffered physical violence from, there's some rough patches in this movie for you. Now, I want to be clear, we don't actually see very much actual violence on camera. But when I said that this was well scripted and well acted, they do a wonderful job, particularly Pruitt Taylor Vince, in being menacing, giving you the sense that something terrible is about to happen to a victim a couple times. And uh, we get a couple fade to blacks and, you know, post, um, for lack of a better term, post-mortem scenes. We also have somewhere Vince is, you know, kind of leering over an intended victim. And man, uh, it had me on the edge of my seat. And so this movie is getting really good reviews. I'm not the only one out there saying it's worth watching, but I'm ter- I'm so, but I'm certainly telling you this is worth watching. If you're into horror and uh, particularly the kind that involves just a little dab of the supernatural, but is really based on family dynamics and the threats that are present to families uh, in the broader outside world. Uh, there's a couple other movies that I saw a trailer about. There are a couple other movies I want to put in front of you that are unreleased, uh, but that I think you might want to be watching out for. One of them is an upcoming project. Two others are also available on Netflix. The one that I'm most looking forward to seeing is one that I also watched the trailer for, and it piqued my interest. That's a movie releasing this month in four days as of this recording, so on August 18th. It's called The Monster Project, and I'm not going to tell you anything more about that. I think the trailer tells you exactly what you need to know if you feel like going to watch it. If not, um, I would just mark my calendar, and I would Google The Monster Project on the 18th. Look where you can find that for your own viewing pleasure. I don't believe this is getting a wide theatrical release. I'm suspicious that it's going to be some kind of streaming release or video on demand, so um, you'll have to track it down, but it has a trailer that's on the front page of IMDb right now, so I'm assuming it won't be too hard to find, and I think it will probably turn out to be something that's well worth watching. The other two movies, uh, just to mention them and see if uh, you guys are interested in watching them, maybe giving us your feedback on them, are The Transfiguration and I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Now, both of those are available on Netflix. Uh, I Am the Pretty Thing has been available for some time. It's been sitting on my list, and I haven't watched it yet, but I plan to remedy that this week. I'm also going to watch The Transfiguration. So I Am the Pretty Thing looks like supernatural horror in the ghost and demon sense. That's about all I know from just, you know, the sort of the promotional material I've seen. I haven't watched a trailer for that. Surprise, surprise. And then I read that The Transfiguration is maybe the best vampire movie uh, in the last several years. And so if you're into vampire movies, check out The Transfiguration. I plan on watching both of those. And if they're worth talking about, I'll get back with you guys, give you my thoughts, give you a recommendation of whether or not you should see them, whether there was anything scary there that was uh, worth tracking down. 
And if you get ahead of us and watch those, uh, we would love to hear from you. So you can get on our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash saw something scary. Love to hear your thoughts on that movie or any of the ones we cover. Really just enjoy interacting with those who listen to the show. So please feel free to get on there and give us your thoughts. Or you can do it by leaving us a review on iTunes. Of course, we're looking for five star reviews. Take those very seriously. We read all of those. And so if you wanted to give us your thoughts on a film we've covered or one of these that I've mentioned, um, we would definitely enjoy uh, reading those as we read the review you leave for us. And of course, that helps us find, you know, new listeners and things of that matter. So it's really helpful to us when you leave those reviews and we'd appreciate it if you would do so. That is all the new movie news I have here. And so I'd like to get into The Cure for Wellness, which is a movie that released last year and stars Jason Isaacs, uh, Dean DeHaan, Mia Goth. If you're a long-term listener to our show, you know that we talked about watching this movie in the theater. Ultimately, we decided against it. Uh, We've kicked around covering it for an episode several times now uh, that it's out on Blu-ray and DVD for home video watching. But we hadn't really got around to it until this week. We went and picked this movie up. We watched it independently and came back to sit down and uh, give our thoughts on the film. Speaking on behalf of Derek and I, we had a pretty similar perspective on this film. I thought the best way for us to discuss it is to sort of mentally draw a pros and cons chart and walk through the strengths of this movie, the weaknesses of this movie, and then try to give a summary evaluation of what we saw in A Cure for Wellness. I'd like to start with a very, very strong pro, and that is the the acting performance in this movie. Now, all three of the uh, leads that I mentioned to you turn in what I believe are really good performances, really solid performances, but one in particular stands out above all the rest, and that is Jason Isaacs. Uh, Jason is in his wheelhouse here. He plays a debonair and suave uh, director of um, sort of a medical or spa facility. I don't want to give too much away after that, but suffice it to say that, well, you know what? Let's get Wahlberg in here. What? No. Spoiler alert. So Isaacs is the big bad guy in this movie, and he does a really great job carrying that role out. You buy him as a sinister mastermind. And that made me realize as I was watching this movie that Jason Isaacs is probably the closest thing we have today to a Bella Lugosi or a Vincent Price, whichever one you kind of stick at the top of your heap there in terms of versatile horror lead men. I realized that I would buy Jason Isaacs in about any of the classic character tropes of the horror genre. So I think we could totally see him playing the mad scientist, which is kind of the role he plays in A Cure for Wellness. But you could also see him playing a lecture-style mastermind criminal. Certainly, he would be able to pull off the uh, classic archetype of a suave uh, vampire, uh, sort of in the vein of Dracula. And so I realize now that if I'm looking for a lead man uh, to build a horror movie around, and he's willing and available, then Jason Isaacs would be my number one choice. Another solid performance comes in from Dane DeHaan. Now, you probably remember him as playing Green Goblin in the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies from a couple years back. Here he plays a, you know, like a young career man in the finance world. He does a really good job of pulling off what I think is something of a difficult uh, role here for him. He is the protagonist of the movie. And yet, when we first meet him, he is deeply unlikable. He's yelling at his subordinates. He's... Uh, very arrogant and cocky. He clearly is comfortable uh, operating outside of legal and ethical concerns. Uh, but he's also a character who, maybe more so than anyone else in the film, grows and changes significantly over the course of this film. So by the time you uh, leave him at the very end of the movie, he has been not just that unlikable jerk that we met at the beginning, but someone who is a crusader hoping to unveil a conspiracy, and then later a victim of mind manipulation. And finally, by the end of the movie, he's someone who's become more human and is acting as a redeemer and a, uh, in some ways a savior. 
by the end of the movie, he's radically, he's in a radically different place than when we first met him at the beginning. And that's not always an easy task to pull off, but I think he handles himself very well here. The other lead and her part is just slightly a bit more minor, but she's vital to the plot and she handles her responsibilities in a way that had she not, this would be a much different film, a much worse film. And that is Mia Goth. Now, if you're familiar with her work, you're out ahead of me. I don't I don't know that I've seen any movies that she's been in prior to this one, but she is Shia LaBeouf's wife. If that's of interest to you, if you like celebrity gossip, uh, she gives a really strong performance. She plays this awkward and sheltered girl, but who uh, by the end of the movie is uh, very much a victim and yet uh, does not become defined by her victimization, ends up actually taking control of her own storyline and is one of the heroes of the story. So she does an excellent job, and we will talk more about her performance here in just a minute. But before we do that, we're going to talk about another feature of this film that falls definitively in the pro category, and that this is a visually arresting film. Now, when I say that, I feel like I need to add more adjectives or emphasize my words uh, more fully, because when I say it's visually arresting, I mean it is captivating. This is a lush cinematography, and you can tell there has been a great deal of skill and labor poured into capturing uh, just the perfect shot basically every time. One of the features that uh, shows up in this movie regularly is the use of mirroring and reflecting. And at certain points, um, I would say I've never seen better. So there's a scene very early in the movie where a train is going into a tunnel. It is reflected off itself, and it's just a beautiful visual. There's another time where Mia Goth's character is walking around the edge of a pool, and it's a perfect reflection, um, which is part of I think, of the way that they are telling the story visually here in uh, more than just an aesthetic sense. I think some of that mirroring is supposed to inform the way we read the plot of the movie. And man, they, they pull it off very well. And when I say visually arresting, I'm, I'm particularly not saying that this is a beautiful film. Uh, this film, again, really grabs your attention as soon as you uh, get out of the opening scenes in the office even though those are in their own right uh, pretty compelling uh, because of how realistic they come across. By the time you get to the spa, which is the setting for most of this movie, uh, you can tell, again, that they're putting a lot of energy and a lot of effort and getting a lot of fruit from trying to have a visually compelling presentation of the characters and the setting. But part of the skill that they're employing is to, to show you these otherwise beautiful landscapes, beautiful architecture in such a way that you realize that this is the pretty facade over a rotten underbelly. At no point in this movie, when you head out to the spa, do you think this place is on the up and up? And it's because through the use of color and other aspects of cinematography, they, t they make it pretty clear very early on that this place is not what it appears to be. And yet continue to shoot in such a way that you can buy that people who are sort of not in on the details of the plot that we have so far would be tricked into thinking that this place is, you know, the epitome of luxurious lifestyle living and the healing arts. I found out from an Ask Me Anything that director Gore Verbinski was involved with on Reddit. He was involved very early on in a project that was aiming to adapt the video game franchise Bioshock into a major motion picture film. If you're familiar with that video game series and uh, would not be surprising if you are considering how popular that franchise is, you can see pretty easily why Verbinski would have been involved in that project and what he would have brought to the table there. There are quite a few steampunk elements uh, present in this film. So if that is an aesthetic sensibility that appeals to you, you are going to enjoy watching Cure for Wellness. In fact, some have said that once that Bioshock project failed to get off the ground, I think he said it died like after eight days maybe in that Ask Me Anything. I I've read some people say that this is the closest you'll ever get to a Bioshock 
film adaptation. So you may want to jump in on that if you're a fan of the uh, video game franchise or the steampunk aesthetic. And I do think this is, you know, the cinematography in this film is largely due to Verbinski because his cinematographer, Bozelli, who he's worked with before, came in really late in the project. And so I think most of what we get here is really a reflection of Gore's eye. And again, he, he pulls it off. It's visually very compelling. The last thing I'm going to say in the pro category is that this is the rare sort of horror movie that strives for compelling cinematography, as I've just been talking about, but also builds its plot on real character development. You know, there's often um, a failure in horror movies, even some of the very best ones, to, to help us care about these characters, to help us see them as real humans who experience growth over the course of the movie. Uh, that is not the case here with Cure for Wellness. Now, having said that, Derek did not care for these uh, characters. I think in some ways he has missed the boat here because for all the criticisms I do have of this movie, which we'll get into here shortly, I, I do think the characters are a strength here. And I think the performances behind them uh, from the from the actors really, really nail what they're asked to do. I think the writing was pretty good. And I appreciate that there was a horror film that decided to try to get done what it wanted to do through uh, telling, you know, character driven stories in some way. So uh, certainly going to see that as a positive. Now, as for the cons, I don't know if you've looked at the runtime of this movie, if you haven't watched it, but if you're going to watch this movie, you need to block out a huge chunk of time. This is a long movie. It has a convoluted plot. It has no intention or effort given towards sort of hurrying the plot along. Truth be told, this movie needed to be somewhere between 20 to 45 minutes shorter. Uh, it would be a much superior film. If there was a bit of time pulled out of it, uh, there's an opening sequence actually to this movie that I have no idea how it relates to the rest of the film, except that it sets up uh, Dean DeHaan's character being sent to the, the spa where most of the action takes place. And it is so drawn out uh, that I think you could probably accomplish in a couple um kind of uh, flashback sequences on the train ride out to the spa, everything that gets done in that fairly lengthy opening segment to the film. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but one of the things that's uh, a drawback to the plot is that they telegraph so much of what's coming. There's an example where I think they are trying to build uh, anticipation, defeat or diffuse that anticipation and then come back to it for a bigger payoff. When the character is going into one of the restrooms there at the spa and you expect something to be in the toilet that is going to be there to frighten him. That happens not once, but twice. Both times there's no payoff. Nothing happens. You, you know, feel like they are kind of playing games with your expectations as a horror fan. There is, however, a third time. And this time when he gets to the toilet, uh, there is a there is something that is supposed to be frightening to you. That's one of the more positive examples of their telegraphing. But basically everything in this movie is either handed to the viewer or made abundantly obvious far, far in advance of ever getting to a point of wondering what is going on and how this thing relates to the rest of the movie. Now, when I'm saying that, I'm talking about the, the key plot elements, who the bad guy is, what the bad stuff he's doing, how this is a danger to the characters we love, how this is going to be resolved. All of that you see coming a mile away. And yet in a very long meandering movie that takes plenty of time to indulge every interest of the creative mind behind it, they still manage to leave open plot holes, large plot holes, despite their ponderous runtime. So I, I told you earlier it was good writing. It was good writing in the sense that they uh, they gave the characters good stuff to do and they gave them the kind of material that, that good actors can uh, use to tell a story. 
But in terms of moving the uh, the actual action of the story along, there's some real weaknesses here. And there's some real unresolved uh, questions that if you get on and do a Google search about this movie, and you read on multiple sites, you'll see the same set of questions coming up each time because they're obvious plot holes that people from you know all different kind of backgrounds are picking up on and they're viewing and they're going to the Internet in various locations to, to try to figure out how all these things fit together. And I think that's because these things don't really fit together, although there are some very creative theories out there about how uh, this movie ends up being a, a pretty tightly tied package, which is a theory I don't subscribe to. You know, that that's my general criticism of the movie. There is a specific criticism of this movie that uh, Derek and I actually agreed on, and it is such a negative that it actually kills the value of this movie to me. There is a rape scene at the end of this film that is just a bridge too far. I get that we're supposed to see the bad guy here as a monster, but there was no need to play out uh, on screen so much of what they chose to put on screen. And the fact that they choose to do so boggles my mind so thoroughly that I will never recommend this movie to anyone. Uh, In fact, I will recommend that people stay away from this movie because of that scene there at the very end. Uh, Just how... Not only uncomfortable, but downright disgusting. That uh, that final scene is, as I mentioned earlier, Mia Goth is giving a very good performance in this film. Uh, part of the reason that scene is so disgusting is because she and Isaacs handle their uh, assignments so believably. But in this case, their success in the acting endeavor uh, leaves you with a scene that just should not be included in the movie. And uh, a scene that just is just not the sort that I can recommend. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's just a bridge too far. Uh, there's a lot that you can do in terms of showing the implication of violence, the threat of violence, the threat of victimizing a young woman without having to put it on the screen. Uh, I talked about The Devil's Candy earlier. They do a lot of this in their film, and they do a much better job of helping you to feel real fear, real terror, really uh, empathize with the character who's in danger without taking you through gruesome details. And Verbinski here in A Cure for Wellness just fails to uh, walk that tightrope very well. And the failure is such that I think it really disqualifies his movie from being enjoyable. And a lesser criticism, but one that's connected to that part of the movie as well, not just particularly that scene, but the wrapping up of the movie. The third act of this movie feels like it belongs to an entirely different film from the first two acts. And that is not the sign of good craftsmanship and filmmaking. And so even if we didn't have that uh, gruesome scene, this would be a point of criticism for the film in general. It probably wouldn't have been, it probably wouldn't have been enough for me to come away saying, no, you just should not see this movie. You should skip it. It's not really worth your time. I probably would be more open to telling people if you like a particular kind of gothic horror, fairy tale sort of story, maybe you enjoy this film. But nonetheless, it's just a really strange ending to the movie uh, as an act. And again, it's a detriment to the viewing experience. So we couldn't end this review of the movie without talking about just how out of place that final segment feels uh, when compared up against the rest of the movie. So, friends, we come to sort of the payoff moment for the episodes we do talking about movies. Um, Our task is to be your guide to authentically scary movies, things that are worth watching for the fright content and the quality of the film. 
Derek and I were complete agreement on this movie. This is a film that is not worth seeing, as I've already mentioned several times. It's also not particularly scary. Unless you are someone who is just completely sensitized to body horror uh, of really a mild variety, in my opinion, you're not going to be disturbed by this movie. There's a few um, scares that are supposed to come from the natural world, a few scares that are supposed to come from psychological tension, one particular scare that's supposed to come from, you know, a threat to a human body. None of them really pay off. Uh, It just ends up not being a scary movie. So I'm here to tell you that in watching A Cure for Wellness, I did not see anything scary in this movie. And I don't think you will either, apart from a truly awful scene that is the wrong kind of horror. So again, uh, thumbs down on this one for us. We would label this a dumpster fire. Tell you to move along, spend your time somewhere else. Maybe go check out uh, I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, Devil's Candy. Wait for that. Maybe wait for that movie called The Monster Project that's coming out in a couple days. Don't don't waste your money or your time on a cure for wellness. Uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Appreciate you guys hanging with me on this solo flight. We are planning just this evening to go see Annabelle Creation. That movie is already mopping up at the box office and is getting really solid reviews. If you're not following David Sandberg, David S. Sandberg on Twitter, I would recommend that you give him a follow. That guy talks a lot about his projects. He has a sense of humor. There's some blue language from time to time. So warning for that if that's something that bothers your conscience. But on the whole, he's uh, he seems to be an interesting filmmaker. And I'm also interested not just in his work in horror, which I've liked so far, uh, namely Lights Out, but uh, I'm interested in his project where he's working with DC to bring the character known as Captain Marvel or you know, more currently Shazam to the to the big screen. That's a big that's a major interest for me. I have a Captain Marvel podcast, if you can believe that. It's called the Shazam Cast, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes if that interests you. It's uh, sort of less frequently updated, but I do try to keep active with that podcast. I love that character, and I think he deserves lots of attention. And I wish he had more fans. I wish he had more advocates in DC Comics to uh, kind of put him in front of people more often because I think it's an inherently compelling comic book character as his history will make abundantly clear. So uh, I'm I'm thankful that Sandberg has the has the reins on that, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he pulls off uh, there with with Captain Marvel, but most particularly tonight with Annabelle Creation. So we will be back to talk to you again next week about that movie unless something goes badly wrong, and I will do my best to make sure if something goes badly wrong, it won't be the accidental deletion of the recording, and Derek and I will be back together to talk to you about Annabelle Creation and let you know if we saw something scary. Thanks to Ryan M. Brewer for our theme music here at Saw Something Scary. Until next time, guys, bye-bye, man.